0: Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle where today I'll be talking with British Iraqi rap artist Kerim Dennis, aka Loki. We'll be talking about the intricate network of interests that tie Israeli private as well as governmental espionage companies and espionage and spy software to the entire world and the kind of impact that that has on what's happening on Gaza Today, as well as the pro-Palestine campaign around the world. We'll also be touching on his personal journey and his take on the music industry in light of what's happening today and also on what young people are thinking. Enjoy. One of the things that, uh, uh, that you've become renowned for is your illustration of uh, an incredibly complicated and sophisticated network of interests of industry manufacturing uh, banking financial but also security spyware uh, it's um, it's something that I, I i don't think anyone can fail to notice that wherever you go in whatever airport whatever uh, shopping mall sometimes I go to some muslim countries european countries and the shopping mall you know when you enter in there there are metal detectors you can't fail but recognize it the software being used um, is a software uh, that has a hq which is in israel but this network of interests um, and you've spoken about this a lot this is something that is part and parcel of the whole struggle. I mean, this is part and parcel of the... We, I mean, from my point of view, for instance, as a political analyst, as a political commentator, I talk about the uh, evils of occupation, about the humanitarian situation, about the what the international agencies such as the UN should do. But there is a side to the struggle, which I, for instance, and I, 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 I take it that the majority of, of people aren't aware of. And that is those kind of networks of interests. Tell, tell me a little bit about this.
1: Well, one of the most um, illustrative sentences that Moshe Dayan ever uttered was post-1967. He said, we need to find a way to make the occupation invisible. And when you look at the way the telecommunications industry developed in Palestine, and really it was turbocharged post-Oslo, Because at the time of Oslo, you had a really small percentage, perhaps 4% of the Palestinian uh, population even connected on a house basis to phone lines at that point, which is unbelievable to imagine. But that is the case as far as I understand. But the Oslo uh, process opened up the space for the founding of these telecommunications companies, which connected the entire Palestinian population to constant communication. Now that happened under the auspices of the Israeli Ministry of Communication all of the equipment that was used by these companies which were then founded, these Palestinian communications companies, had to go through the Israeli military. They could only build in places which the Israeli military gave them permission to build. Um, for example, their their system of um, even being um, taxed for what they did was massively different from the way that Israeli companies would uh, process things. But then the other part of this was it changed a particular unit within the Israeli military, Unit 8200. Um, This is the equivalent of GCHQ um, in Britain. And um, Unit 8200 then had a huge amount of more information to go over in terms of understanding the Palestinian population. And you've had um, whistleblowers from within that unit come out and say, uh, around 30 to 40 whistleblowers, say, we're using this information to blackmail um, Palestinians, um, whether it would be on issues of their personal life, whether it would be on other things that they may not want people to know, whether it be if they have a family member that has an illness, that sort of informational advantage was granted uh, to the Israelis massively through uh, telecommunications. In addition to that, you see in several of the key assassinations that um, Israel has carried out, um, in, hamouri uh, in, in Paris, for instance, was carried out by them planting explosives in his, uh, in his, uh, in his phone. In the 70s, during uh, Operation uh, Wrath of God, uh, Golda Meir. But then later on, you have a similar kind of assassination carried ag- out against um, Ayash in Gaza, but then also Abdul Aziz Arantisi. The assassination of him, particularly, was um, using the GPS signal from the phone to identify where he was. So the phone and information gathered through it has definitely been a kind of invisible and silent weapon that israel's used now when it relates to our societies is when the uh the neoliberal era which is the era where our political class become um, convinced of the idea that private corporations are better suited to fulfill the role of the state than the state is So what that leads to is numerous state functions essentially being outsourced to private companies. And then this is the opportunity for Israel through Unit 8200, which by this time we're talking, um, I mean, 2012 really is when the decision is made. It becomes a prestigious unit that that has a lot of uh, pride around the world because the people that come out of it are then... Producing companies that offer services to other states. But the people that come out of that unit are still connected in, uh, in an umbilical way to the Israeli state. And so from that, you get, for instance, the NSO group, who who you know better than many about. Um, you have Celebrite, which is a company kind of seen as a sort of alternative to the NSO group, but still performs the same kind of functions, which is phone hacking. So Uh, you have the British police now in this country hacking phones with a company which is an outgrowth of Israeli intelligence, Celebrite, Um, and that sort of changed the way that happened because Britain is not um, exceptional in that regard. Many states around the world, including key um, Arab states, which we can speak about also, um, use the same company but also use similar companies and in 2012 you had a policy which at the time was secret taken by the netanyahu government it was later reported in calculus tech in an article this is a important israeli tech magazine that the article specifically states that it has passed through the israeli military censor meaning that the 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 content of the article is something that the israeli military accepts as fact And in the article, it stated very clearly that Netanyahu had a policy in 2012 to move individuals from Unit 8200 into private companies and then begin uh, uh,
0: working around the world in ways that could benefit the state of Israel. I mean, what you're describing, on one level, some might think that, well, states behave like that. But in actual fact, when, we, when we're when we talking about the application of all of this, we're talking about ordinary people, ordinary citizens being monitored, being subject to these surveillance apps, surveillance methods and the such. What happened to privacy? I mean, I thought that privacy was sacrosanct. I think I thought that privacy was something that No one looked uh, into your messages or your letters or your such, but it seems that, um, I mean, I think that, what was it, 15 years ago when there was a big scandal around the the, uh, proliferation of uh, CCTV cameras in a particular district of Birmingham, which was (laughs) notorious for having a number of mosques and um, a large population of uh, Muslim families. Um, And that was the first time when there was let's say a public debate about what are we doing regarding you know the the, the monitoring of everyone's move i think there was uh, someone who quite uh, incredibly came out uh, again probably in in, in the, the the decade before last and um, proclaimed that london you couldn't be away from a camera for more than something like two and a half minutes if you're moving throughout the day which if is, that, I, imagine, I mean, which, which is which is incredible. I mean, you think you think that this would be for the f- for for the reason of safety, but with the rise of crime and burglary of various sorts, it's not really that, is it? Absolutely.
1: And the interesting thing with the cameras is that now it's it's beyond just monitoring a moving object, as in a person. The um, NICE systems, for example, which is a subsidiary of Elbit systems, which the British police use for investigations. Um, But more interestingly than that, Glasgow um, city Mm centre uses NICE NICE systems on its uh, CCTVs um, and nice is a brand nice though. is the brand yeah. it's not a discri- it's not a compliment that you're paying yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, it's quite it's quite smart actually because if if you think about kind of the 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 mental trick that that sort of carries out by calling it that but so there's three ways in which nice systems has a presence in britain in scotland and in ireland that it shouldn't so firstly in the scottish case it um carries out facial recognition on the CCTV in the town centre. Now, that was technology developed on the Palestinians. Um, And as I say, Nice Systems is a subsidiary of Elbit, which is Britain's largest, um, Israel's largest arms company. In terms of the British context, the British police also use Nice Systems. It's unclear in what exact ways uh, they use it. I think the interesting uh, point about Celebrite is also the foreign office use it. So then we're getting into the possibility of obviously the Foreign Office Overseas MI6 is Britain's external intelligence agency outsourcing its functions to an outgrowth of Israeli intelligence. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting part of this. But then the thing with NICE systems is that even in the Republic of Ireland, which is among the most pro-Palestinian states on paper, I would say, that exists in Europe for sure. Mm. Um, Alan Shatter, who was their Minister of Justice and is an Israel lobbyist now, um, said that they replaced the uh, recorders in the police stations with nice systems, um, uh, machines, while he was the Justice Minister. So then you're getting into a question of, okay, someone that's gone on to be an Israel lobbyist, while he was the Justice Minister, would have had something to do with that deal, sort of an insinuation of Israeli power into very sensitive part of the uh, the Irish system. But what's also fascinating about the Celebrite case is Celebrite of all the Israeli companies is used by the Pakistani intelligence services, it's used by Venezuelan government, it was used by the Russians until the Ukraine situation. So what's happened here is israel through unit 8200 and through the uh, use of the palestinians as an a guinea pig population have been able to uh, portray themselves as the global experts on control and spying on other human beings and so even to gov- governments who are you know one would imagine that the russian Government for sure would not have this uh, weakness in terms of its own institutions. You know, you could understand it maybe in the in the British context. You wouldn't understand it in the US context because, of course, the US is the the way that the Israelis have been able to get access to classified um, stuff in the US has been through the cybersecurity, which is a less direct method, but is is pretty significant too. You know, you're talking about seriously classified databases of the Department of Defense. Their um, their cybersecurity is being delivered for the Lockheed Martin, for example, cybersecurity security being delivered for them by Israeli companies. Can you trust where that information goes? I think even the history of Israeli espionage, Israeli espionage in the United States including tapping Bill Clinton's phone, including um, spying on the White House during the Donald Trump years, um, you know, including the promise software scandal. This kind of stuff would lead you to believe that the US needs to have a far more robust form of assuring the security of its data. I would say one thing that's even more sweeping than all of that is this cross-pollination between the Israeli security services, the U.S. security services, and the British uh, security services. And that, really the the scariest example, is um, Oracle. So Oracle provides the data services for the British Ministry of Defense, for the Home Office, for the Foreign Office, and the National Health Service in this country. Now, Oracle was set up initially to service uh, the CIA by Larry Ellison. He's believed to be the fourth to seventh richest man in the world. There's some disagreement on uh, where he falls in that regard.
0: But he's not poor by any not,
1: He's certainly not, but, but his, uh, his angle is interesting because he's somebody that historically is one of the largest funders of the Friends of the IDF in the history of the organization. He's somebody who is such a close friend to Benjamin Netanyahu that he is due to testify for on Netanyahu's behalf in the corruption trial, um, which is not happening because Netanyahu is going to war with the rest of us. But worse than that, this company, Oracle, offered the directorship of the company to Netanyahu. So what we're saying is that the company responsible for holding the data of the MOD, the Home Office, the Foreign Office, and the NHS
0: literally offered its directorship to Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, um, Kareem, help me out here because, you know, I'm someone who always precedes a lot of what we say by, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, a theorist, but only a few years ago, only if we had a huge scandal, which was called the Fomen hacking scandal. This seems to be on a totally different level. I mean, we had a scandal whereby millions were paid out to victims of journalists who managed to somehow manipulate the voicemail of a teenage girl who, end, who ended up being killed. And that was as big as they got and as big as it seems to someone a layman like myself uh, that it could get. But you're talking on a totally different level. You're talking on a global surveillance project. Potentially. Now, okay, so the question that comes is why?
1: Well, I mean, with the Larry Ellison case, um, I certainly cannot say categorically that that information um, is going to the Israelis. What we can say is that the CEO of Larry Ellison's company, Oracle, Safra Katz, who is herself Israeli, has gone on record as saying that Israel is um, of primary concern to us as a company. And if our employees have any problem with our relationship with Israel, then they can find another company, unbelievably. So from my perspective, what I would say is I would Question how safe the information going into Oracle is. But another aspect of the Oracle story and the procurement of the contract is a real cause for concern. So Larry Ellison um, had a charity called the Larry Ellison Foundation, which was uh, based here in this country. Who was employed as the head of the charity, which didn't do much apart from seemingly funnel money to the Tony Blair Foundation? Its head was Boris Johnson's father-in-law, while Boris Johnson was prime minister. Now, what happens when Ellison procures the contract for Oracle, the same month the contract is procured, the Larry Ellison Foundation in Britain shuts down. So Boris Johnson's father-in-law was getting half a million pounds wow. per year to work for this. Is this public knowledge? Only insofar as uh, I've tweeted about it, but it's, um, it, it, you know we we used to have
0: and we we are busy discussing sort of partygate
1: absolutely we you know we used to have a, a sort of investigative strand of journalism in this country yeah, you know we did. you'd have someone like john pilger you'd have private eye um you'd have some good work done and and you still do to some extent however as you know as you will well know because you've been through the the sort of demonization stuff Often that happens because a button has been pushed and that button is often pushed by somebody in a particular position of influence, which is often not somebody directly working at the paper. But then all of a sudden, all the papers are basically almost rewording the same press release. You've seen it. Yes. So, so the kind of. Including the
0: typos, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) it's a copy paste, including (laughs) the typos.
1: Amazing. And and then the sort of interaction between that and the institutions which we rely on to administer, whether it's banking, whether it's other things, the relationship is really interesting how all of that plays out. But in this case, it would take somebody doing what I did, which is looking at the tax filings of uh, the Larry Ellison Foundation as a charity, looking at who was employed by it. It wasn't only uh, uh, Carrie Simmons' father, who was employed by it, it was several high ranking figures in governmental departments at the same time. So you you had people working in the foreign office, working for this charity at the same time as Ellison was bidding for this uh, massive contract. I mean, it's, it's humongous, the Oracle contract, so it calls into question the safety of that information another aspect of how this country whether the information is or isn't safe has to be british telecom so british telecom in the last year has had a um a a stakeholder takeover so the largest shareholder in british telecom today is patrick drahi now patrick drahi is a french israeli billionaire Now, as soon as he took the majority stake in British Telecom, it triggered a national security investigation by the British government. They did not say why, but it's my, and I think this is fair to say, that there was suspicion on the parts of some in the British establishment that this individual um, works for the Israelis in some capacity, and I'll explain why. Patrick Jaye is also the founder and owner of I-24, the I-24 news channel. Okay. Now I-24 in this recent period was the channel responsible for the 40 beheaded babies claim. And the Haaretz investigation several years ago found that I-24 was working as a proxy for the Netanyahu family. So, so, so we are not alone in having these suspicions about these particular ways in which, you know, and he bought, for instance, the liberation um, uh, newspaper in France, which was founded by Jean-Paul Sartre and replaced the editor with somebody who had come out of unit eight, 200. So all of these are questions. They're not assertions. I, I, I cannot say categorically um, that our information and our phone calls are being given to a foreign intelligence agency. What I can say is individuals that are close to those, for, to that particular foreign agency, and as I've demonstrated, very close to particularly Benjamin Netanyahu, are in situations of sensitivity when it comes to national security. I mean,
0: listen, all that you're saying and all that you have said on your social media posts and the such and also the, the the public speaking engagements it's in which you've illustrated um um elements of, of of these connections they make for absolutely fascinating and quite intriguing um you know sort of they 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 provoke the the mere question that you know what's going on there seems to be an exclusive club of wheelers wheelers and dealers, partly from the intelligence community, partly from the political community, partly from the the media community and the financial community. There seems to be, uh, as I said, I mean, the same name. And, and, you know, we talk about conflict of interest within, within small companies run by two, three people and we make them seem to be you know something which which is nigh on creating a a public security threat but yet here we are talking about a, a conflict of interest in an industry that is so dangerous if put in the wrong hands absolutely and yet there seems to be almost no no murmur about 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 all this this is this is problematic to to the extreme now you mentioned that you started off with the moshe dayan and post 1967 and then you you said that this was after oslo in 1992 1993 was I mean, was is it that we entered, after 9-11, a phase of time, the war on terror time, when people became a little bit lax with their own privacy, with affording governments more and more slack when it comes to invading their own privacy under the pretense that, you know, we're being protected? Was it, Did you think that 9-11 played a role? Absolutely. I mean, the Patriot Act was sweeping um, and
1: gave on that exact basis, um, the rights to do everything, you know, monitor bank accounts in real time, that was the US, and that didn't apply here, though. You have uh, recent legislation that's been passed here, which will allow the government to monitor bank accounts in real time of people that they have suspicions about. These are obviously gross violations of people's privacy. You know, in the case of banks, though, the kind of incestuous relationship with intelligence agencies has been there. HSBC is a perfect example. Um, you know where he had a former very high ranking figure in MI5 go directly into heading up HSBC and of course that coincided with the targeting of Muslims in this country at the same time you had Shawcross um, with the charity commission and and all of the the consequences that that led to I think we also need to have more clarity um, and that's difficult because it's not Publicly announced, but more clarity about the extent of integration between um, the U.S. and Britain. You know, there's twelve thousand U.S. soldiers in this country. Um, Oracle is primarily uh, a creature of the CIA. It has a a high ranking figure there, if not the I think the deputy uh, director is uh, is former um, CIA, but also. It serviced the CIA and was set up for that uh, purpose. So with the U S having full access to things in this country, Israel has kind of gone along, um, in, I would say the last few decades in an, in an kind of elevated way, but there's imagine this, there's an organization called the UK Israel tech hub, pardon me. Now the UK Israel tech hub is based within the British embassy. Um, And it's staffed by former Israeli military and intelligence personnel. It's headed by a gentleman called Haim Shani, who is the um, former um, director general of the Israeli Ministry of Finance. Now, this organization, which exists inside the British Embassy, has the stated objective of procuring public sector contracts for Israeli tech companies in Britain. And who's it funded by? It's funded by the British Foreign Office. It's funded by the British uh, Department for Trade and it's funded by the embassy itself. So can you imagine that British taxpayers are funding an organization that has the stated objective of procuring public sector contracts for uh, what is essentially companies that are an outgrowth of a foreign intelligence agency? That's how you get Celebrite, which, by the way, Haim Shani, was simultaneously a director of, at the same time as he was director general of the UK Israel Tech Hub, and same for Nice Systems. He was a director of Nice Systems at the same time as director general of the UK Israel Tech Hub. So, we're being um, taken for a ride in in, in quite a, an extraordinary way. And when we get to the point where now Israel is 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 committing genocide, and that and that is a That is a perception which, you know, when we're out there, you know, 2008, 2009, demonstrating, gathering, talking to people, okay, we're a couple of hundred thousand people and it was strongly felt within our community. It was a source of pain, bitterness, and uh, real tribulation for us all, all on a personal level, but now. We're at a stage where that perception that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza is, I would say, a majority of humanity has that perception. You know, and even when looking at the, and this is, you know, a slightly different direction, but when we look at the the governments which designate Palestinian armed resistance, which is their right under UN resolution 3246 to Israeli occupation as terrorism, okay? So you've got the British government, which supposedly represents about 60, 70 million people. Okay, you've got the US government, which supposedly represents a few hundred million people. Okay, you've got the Japanese government, and you've got the EU. So let's put them all together. It's less than a billion human beings are represented by governments that designate Palestinian armed resistance categorically as terrorism. What about the rest of the governments in the world? What about the government of Turkey? Less than 100 million people? Okay, what about the government of Venezuela? What about the government of Iran? What about the government of China, over a billion people? What about the government of Russia, several hundred million people? And you fast get to the point where you can at least track over a billion people, at least in the world, being represented by governments that do not designate these organizations in that particular way so what you come to the point is where you say the majority of humanity is represented by governments that see what israel is doing as genocide the majority of humanity are represented by governments that don't perceive resistance to what israel does as terrorism you know we in terms of our political space are more in tune with the perception of the majority of the world than these uh, particular forces who are in many cases, you know, now you have an interesting point where a lot of pressure is being put on the police and the CPS separately by Israel lobby groups like the board of deputies, community security trust, even the Israeli embassy to use the IHRA definition in cases. And you didn't have that. But it was always going to be, unfortunately, the natural um, uh, uh, conclusion of what happened in the Corbyn years, unfortunately, is that you'd get to the point where they would start to wield the very same stuff they were wheeling out against us um, in a sort of more legal way. But then the main protector is going to be the juries, is the juries and also the CPS. There is some resistance that seems to be kind of uh, being asserted, so... It's it's a it's a very amazing time. I, I didn't. I underestimated, you know. I underestimated unbelievably. I think we underestimated, as bizarre as it sounds, the scale of brutality and the, You know, we knew Israel's um, capacity for brutality was limitless, but I didn't necessarily see the tolerance for that brutality, and actually worse than tolerance. Now we see with the cutting of the UNRWA staff direct complicity in it being as limitless as it is i mean
0: what what's your hope for the uh, icj case that the south africans I, I mean me personally i see
1: it as a the the interim uh ruling which was uh issued was massively encouraging and i in i say why because the perception that a lot of us had were that the judges would vote in line with their government's position. And the only judge which a government came out and said this judge is not voting in line with their government's position was the, the Ugandan Uganda government who was voting in line with Israel. And so to have the, the judge from the UK, the judge from the US really vote in a way that we did not expect them to is a
0: I think it's a credit to the case itself absolutely, and the dossier that was presented and and like many, many legal experts who commented on the media in the days before, to a man and woman all saying that the, the case is infallible and that it's very, very difficult to find against. And even the Israeli um, defense team who spoke on the second day and by the grace of God was covered fully by the BBC, we got to see that. <laughs> actually didn't respond, didn't go to respond point by point as a defense would normally do uh, to the case. But they went on various directions, talking about the, the history of the Holocaust and the, the prosecution of the people of, uh, of, of a Jewish faith in, in Europe in, in the last century and the such. But the mere spectacle, and this is something that I've spoken about, the mere spectacle of uh, a legal team from South Africa, standing man after woman after man after woman, um, talking so brilliantly, uninterrupted, you know, for eight hours. It was touching in front of the entire world. I mean, in in my memory, that's never happened before, and in a in a in a global pa- platform such as the ICJ, that is unheard of. But again, obviously then we had uh, the immediate reaction of not only america which is expected but our own government here in the uk various other governments directing their attacks on UNRWA, on the un relief and works agency and uh, claiming that many of its staff were complicit somehow or sympathised with the attacks on the 7th of october so now we have uh, another line, a direct attack on the people of Gaza, whom uh, were hoping that the ICJ's provisional measures regarding allowing aid would give a little bit of relief, a little bit of... It, it shows us, um, and you're absolutely right, I mean, you, you, you knew that, that there were brutal decision-makers and people who were heartless, you know, those kind of romantic descriptions that we often use as politicians, but uh, you never thought that there would be such a sustained, relentless, absolutely despicable attack on every single child in Gaza, every single woman, every single man. Um, you never thought that you actually see it, live through it. And it's been going on not for days, not for weeks, but now we're coming on, on to what, four months? It's, uh, it's it's incredible, and it, and it and I think it speaks for for the kind of world order that within which we live. You know, whether we're talking about international law, whether we're talking about uh, the international community per se, and you know, you went uh, and very briefly described how you know those who outlawed the armed resistance of the Palestinians. And that they barely make something like fifteen percent of the world population, um, but in a way, the international community that's the problem of the international community. I mean, you have a security council which is made up of what of who I mean how much of the world population do they make so it's it, you'd like to think that the natural outcome of all of this is a radical transformation of how things are. And, you know, the way that people are talking now, it's not about changing a face or a name. You would have expected people to say, well, it's just Netanyahu. You know, if, you, if Netanyahu goes, everything will be okay. But actually more and more people are now questioning the very idea of Israel, of Zionism, and more and more of what you're you know, telling us about those connections, those, you know, the trails of money and the such, uh, about espionage and surveillance and the like. <clears throat> Just a few weeks ago, we had the Epstein, Epstein scandal and the names. And again, people pointed to, you know, going back to Robert Maxwell and, uh, and to that particular link and, and, and the like. And it's, it's, you know, it might have taken Gaza and the horrific pain and suffering over the course of the past 100 and so days for people to start asking those questions. Do you feel that we're in the throes of a transformative moment maybe?
1: I feel it can be but um, we have to be careful about what we allow particularly the United States and, and Britain to get away with in terms of PR because Israel has two markets of consumption for its PR which are at odds so the Israeli government has to appeal to the Israeli population which is certainly the most right-wing um with with um, fascistic tendencies as a population it has a and, and and part of it comes out of the the failure of what they call the first Aliyah. So the first Aliyah, the movement of, which preceded Theodor Herzl. It was the movement of um, European Zionists to Palestine in the late 1800s. And it was perceived as a failure because they employed Palestinians to till the soil. And so then that led to the strand of muscular kibbutzism, which was this idea of Europeans doing it for themselves under the sun, but also this understanding of the division of labor, whereby you had to have separate um, institutions that were uh, labored by only Jewish people. One of the only places in Palestine that didn't have that was the railways, so where you had Palestinians and Zionists um, working together. But other than that, and then also obviously the British Mandate had within it the legal obligation to implement the Balfour Declaration, which meant setting up separate institutions for Jewish people and for indigenous Palestinians, Muslims, and Christians. So where those fascistic tendencies come from is in that idea of an authentic core. But the most sort of contradictory aspect of it is that When you look at the grandfather clause, so the law of return, which says that any person that has a Jewish grandparent can go and become an Israeli citizen. When you look at the influx of Indian laborers now being brought in to replace the Palestinian construction workers, um, Ecuadorian labor, uh, thousands, tens of thousands being brought in, these are non-Jewish people. Um, The society has aspirations or pretensions of being an exclusivist Jewish utopia. And so it's a sort of fantastical idealistic idea which sacrifices others for the greater good, which cancels the humanity of other people for the greater good. But what it is in actuality is quite a melting pot because Hebrew, even as a language, was not spoken. was not spoken um, until the Zionist movement had to, artificially produce this this sort of renaissance of the language from being a language of religious practice to being a, a language spoken on a daily basis. I mean, Theodore, that's one of the things he said. he said. He said, we are not Europeans now, but we will be when we're in Palestine. And he perceived, I mean, yeah, he died in 1905. So, you know, I understand those that would say he wouldn't have a realistic perception, but he perceived the language of the state to be German. He said, when the state is set up, speak german so anyway that was quite a tangent but my, my my point was was that my fear in the potential for transformation it's transformation certainly in terms of perception as as you will have seen too and i've seen people who previously were indifferent to this cause which has been of great importance to us they now are adopting it in a very passionate way. And that's really exciting and brilliant. The worry is the extent to which that can then become uh, reflected within intransigent political systems. And then the worry in the US context is if Trump is next, which seems less of an if day by day. You know, the Israeli government has been funding several organizations, the most important one, the Temple Institute, um, and, and they've been funded by the Israeli Ministry of Culture and the Israeli Ministry of Education for several decades now. The stated objective of this organization is the complete disappearance of Al Aqsa and the replacement of it with um, a temple, which they believe to have existed twice in human history once to have been destroyed by the Romans, another time by the uh, Persians, um, according to the 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 belief that somehow now this organization historically had an antagonism with the israeli military uh the temple institute and supporters of the temple movement the temple mount movement they were arrested by israeli police and stopped by israeli soldiers from launching terrorist attacks on al-aqsa now their relationship is so hand in glove and it's it's since the Gilad-Odan period, um, 2015 or so, but it precedes that, whereby people now, and this is according to an Israeli army investigation, not not me, the Israeli army investigation found that the Israeli government was offering, as an alternative to conscription, membership of this organisation. So so to that extent, it's being state-sanctioned, the destruction of Al-Aqsa. So that's the next phase, that the emptying of the West Bank, the the all-out war with Lebanon, the you know these are the next phases, and they're ugly. They're really ugly. These next phases, and Trump has the grit, the steel, the determination uh, to carry out these things, and I think, especially in the sort of the Arabic-speaking societies' side of it one of the leftovers from the trump years which has received zero scrutiny during this period is um a a a company called affinity affinity group a hedge fund which is run directly by jared kushner but he started it with two billion dollars from the saudi government affinity partners is its name it's currently an owner of an Israeli motor company called the Shlomo Group. Now, the Shlomo Group has been equipping the Shaudag and the um and and one other unit in the Israeli military since October 7th with military equipment and with vehicles throughout the operations in Gaza. So this is a company which has Saudi money within it. And so the abraham accords were about the integration of these forces in the region and enabling israel to have you know the uae for example you have something called edge group which is a, 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 an investment firm owned by the uae state it has around 15 million dollars uh, invested in an israeli drone company which which works with their on their airspace it's been tested by the israeli air force it's used by the israeli police um you know they also have a subsidiary of elbit systems in the uae so the trump era allowed israel to integrate these regional forces into a war effort even in a silent way as has you know been done with gaza um this time this is unprecedented you know you look at the us involvement in gaza They've sent U.S. Air Force officers to help Israel with targeting. The, you know, it probably happened before. We didn't know that it happened. You know, It was only until The Intercept published this. Um, you know, Biden has constantly been selling them more and more and more weapons. And this was what Netanyahu said a few days um, into the war. He said, the one thing we need from the U.S. is munitions, munitions, munitions and and they've been getting it but the british involvement i think this is why the icj has the potential to tear apart the accepted quote-unquote rules-based order which is led by these particular uh powers in the global north and um, because british u.s and german i mean the german german arms sales to israel increased by a thousand percent throughout this war they're going to be absolutely blown open and exposed and um You know, I'm not a legal expert or a lawyer, but I believe there will be some form of legal vulnerabilities for the US, Britain, and Germany. Let's hope
0: so. So Let's hope so. Listen, I have to talk to you about your other side, and that is your artistic side. You're known to be a rapper that appeals to countless young people. Now, the first thing I'd like to ask is what what made you so political? What was it that made you so political? I mean,
1: I think with... Both of my parents, they had their own um, political experiences. They both came from political families in in quite different ways. I think we were given, to some extent, a political education um, at home. I, I do feel, though, that what sort of radicalizes us is the context. It's not just the stories and the experiences of our parents because, you know, were we to have existed in a political context which didn't sort of racialize you you know being stopped under schedule 7 terrorism act being detained being um, detained by the police as a teenager these kind of things ultimately push you towards some quite radical conclusions about sort of who you are and where you fit into the society whether you like it or not you know you as a child can have pretensions of not being an outsider, but there are mechanisms of of sort of discipline within the society that kind of let you know you, you're you're not really of us, and and so then that kind of pushes you more to the margins. But then obviously, the Iraq War Gaza, you know you start to look at the state as having. How old were you when Iraq? Iraq, happened? I was um so 2003. I was um sixteen, yeah, sixteen, yeah. seventeen. Not, not were you fully aware of what was going yeah. on? Yeah, I was aware of what was going on, but I wasn't. Um, what I didn't grasp, you know, and this is um, since since you know marrying uh, someone, she's Iraqi. She came to the country two thousand nine. I didn't, I didn't grasp the way at that time that war manifest in on the micro level so i had a sort of concept of how it operated on a macro level um i had a a great grandmother who was in uh, lebanon in beirut um when the israelis invaded we still um, had a bullet from when they shot into her, her um, apartment and and so you had these kind of macro understandings you know that these periods of time, had, you know, we were we intermarried with Palestinians. So I had some concept and, and close to Palestinian families. So I had some concept of that and how these big things spatially change people and, and what people have access to in people's lives. But I didn't get how on a micro level, even that process that was happening in 2003 would then manifest in my own nervous system let alone the nervous system of other people and then people that I don't know how that um destabilizing force and that kind of feeling of a lack of safety. While obviously, you know, comparatively it's absolutely nothing compared to people that were um, you know, in Iraq at the time, but even us here, you know, Sinan Amtoon, he um he called Iraqis during that period like barbarians in Rome. Um so we were Inside that border, you know, the internal outsiders, um, you know, I think Iraq as a child was like Al-Gha'ib uh, al- Al-Hadr. Yeah, and it's like, it's it's there, but it's not there. It's not there. And it's not there, but it's there. Yeah. And it's like you have a, a sort of tendency um, as, you know, you, you may have, have seen it as well also. Some of us sort of raised in diaspora we will go through uh, stages of our understanding of who we are and then our relation to the, the homeland, for example. So you've got the uh, the saying, <laughs> so, so,
0: so <laughs> fe-
1: feeling that, that sometimes you'd get among people in positions similar to our positions, um, maybe they might see themselves as better. Iraqis or maybe they might especially during the war on terror as a way to disarm targeting they might turn Iraqis or people like them into the butt of their jokes when they're around others in order to try and you know um, break the ice or avoid kind of uh, any problems um, and it's a sort of a orientalism that can happen I think but by 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 children mainly, by children mainly, because if you're seeing every day the depiction of people like you to be backwards, you know you're not learning about. There's um, there's something that I only discovered when I was older and I went to university and stuff like that. In the British Museum, there's one interpretation you can take from the British Museum, which is okay. This is stolen goods absolutely correct but there's another interpretation you can take if you look carefully so there's something called king offers coin in there now he was the uh, um, the the ruler of um, uh, middle england when england was a it was a hepatarchy um, in anglo-saxon times We're talking the 700s and you have a coin which has the shahada on it La ilaha illallah written in arabic which seems to be clear that it's a non-Arabic writer that's done this in order to kind of mimic the economic prowess of the Abbasin at that time and even you look at like the fingerprints of Arabic on the English language and, and one of the interesting ones in the Iraqi context is Ruz so Ruz being developed in Iraq then becomes rice in England but then, in the Iraqi context, after the British mandate in Mesopotamia, it becomes Timmen. <laughs> <Timmon. laughs> so, so, so you you think about that sort of interesting exchange you know you've got gahawa, coffee sur alphabet, alphabet but these are all things as a child you don't i mean i i I'm intending to uh translate these things to my to communicate these things to my son so he has he's able to have uh, a form of of pride mm. but i think at that time when a lot of what you're seeing is this sort of industry which is based on depicting you and people like you or people you may feel you have an affinity with as ultimately backwards and prone to violence and that's simply because the state has adopted a hostile uh, posture towards you that's not because that's representative of the Iraqi population. That's not because of anything like that. You are a targeted population. And so, you know, all of that takes a long, long time to realize and form a healthy relationship with. I, th- I, think, I think that's the most important thing. And, you know, as you will know, you know, we're trying to raise healthy children here and um, children that have a, uh, a sense of self, which is not defined by those who seek to dominate
0: the countries of what, origin what do you what do you hear young people worried about what do they ask what's what 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 kind i i know that you know i have two grown-up uh boys and um i always tell them that they should be ready for a very very tough world and they sometimes joke and they say well thank you for ruining the world for us <laughs>
1: um but uh, it's, so, it's so hard talking to kids is so
0: hard, it's very, you, very you, hard you, you have I mean. to
1: find the happy medium you don't want to scare them too much but yeah what,
0: what i mean what do, what do young people tell you um, what I, are they worried about i mean do they think about the things that you tell them do they think about those kind of those, this, this long long winded uh, i mean do, do, <laughs> connections? Do, i mean yeah i mean um does um, it help the conversation that's a good question i mean i think
1: If we were to kind of try and break down the core of what both they, you and me are worried about, it is a political system which cannot assimilate their problems, their hopes, their fears, what they want to see in the world, and the things they care about. And I think that what, what I do with the music is probably symptomatic of a political system which cannot integrate this point of view. You know, we saw the attempt with uh, with Jeremy. We saw the attempt with others across the years to try and bring in to those corridors of power these kind of what I would like to think are sort of pro people ideas. And so, when that's not reflected in the political system, people will look for it outside of the system. And 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 so, I think that one of the interesting things with the music industry is it's it's no different from other. Uh, sort of reflections and manifestations of power. It has all the same kind of dynamics within it, um, meaning that unfortunately the music, and I would say it's, it's progressively got worse the older I've got because for me, rap taught me empathy. That, that was the thing that rap taught me. I was able to listen to somebody on a very intimate level, hear about their daily concerns, and often people who had different lives to me. And so I was, through rap, placing myself in somebody else's shoes. And that is a great thing, you know, to, to for, for, for that to happen to young people. But then the older I've got, the more and more corporatized I feel it's got, the more and more kind of as a handmaiden to the economic, dominant economic political, uh, economic system. It becomes a kind of a, a, a vehicle, a conduit for advertising you know, and also even on the community level, you know, I'm I'm from Labrook Grove. I care about the children there. I've known them, watched them grown up, and I've seen them get pushed in certain directions, not just by the music, by the 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 cultivation of particular forms of belonging. Particular forms of belonging which I would say determine people's people's value based on their ability to take part in nihilistic um, socially vi- violent acts baraka <laughs> <you. Shukla>. <laughs> <Lovely>. absolutely
0: <laughs> fantastic